Welcome to the Millennial Falcon, a pop culture podcast by three geeky millennials. My name is Pai Chen Bui. I'm a USA Today contributor and a pop culture journalist in the Washington, D.C. area. I'm Willoughby Dobbs. I'm a local filmmaker in D.C. And I am Anya Crittenton, a writer and editor for Entertainment Earth News. Today on the Millennial Falcon, we'll be talking about young adult book-to-movie adaptations, the ones that succeed and the ones that don't. Uh, today, specifically, we're talking about it because in a couple weeks, or whenever you're listening to, The Hunger Games, the final movie of The Hunger Games is coming out this uh, November, and I'm excited for it. Are you guys excited for it? I'm excited. It's the fourth um, movie in the franchise. Mm-hmm. It's actually part two of Mockingjay. They did a Harry Potter deal where they split up the fourth mm-hmm. book. Yes. I, don't, I actually have my doubts about that because I don't think Mockingjay was really meant to be split into two movies. Um, I agree. I also think it's the weakest of the trilogy. Mm-hmm. But I'm excited for the movie because I think it's going to... I think they prob- they're probably going to be ex- ex- uh, doing some of their own, like, tweaking of it to make it a bit more fantastic. Uh, As they do. Uh, I mean, I really liked... I really liked The Hunger Games as a series, so I'm excited to see it end. Uh, so today, we're, we'll be talking about all the different um, fantasy, dystopian genres that are uh just have been spawned from uh all the all the different successful adaptations that have been made of different uh young adult books um and all the ones that are not successful mm-hmm. uh that's gonna this is gonna be a fun episode i think i think so too so the young adult genre is kind of a polarizing one because a lot of people really look down on it similar to how people look down on basically anything that teenage girls like you know, it's that whole condescending type of um, adolescent love, like a passion for things. But um, young adults is interesting because it's kind of um, a descendant of the 80s teen movies, I think. Because before that, we didn't really have any genre meant for teens or for children. There were movies only made for adults and Disney movies, basically. Um, and after John Hughes came about and the Brat Packing came about in the 80s, we kind of started seeing a more rich and varied genre for teens and people who are coming of age. Um, young adults, one would say. Young adults, one would say. <laughs> so we have that. And like I think the modern young adult genre really was jumped off, started off with um, Harry Potter. Of course, we have to mention that. Mm-hmm. So We should make the distinction, though, that... The first couple Harry Potter books were let's say, they were written for children, mm-hmm. but they can I'm, still be found in the children's section at yeah, bookstores. Yes, mm-hmm. um, but I mean, fit, a, people of all ages enjoy that book. My dad read the book, the book series at the same time I did. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would definitely say the sixth and seventh books are definitely much more skewering to young adults. Yeah, because in the sixth book you get the introduction of heavy romance. Mm-hmm. People are actually starting to date each other. Um, and yeah. then in the seventh book, real love is 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 in the air with Harry with a uh, uh, Ron and Hermione. Yeah, and like definitely the issues of mortality were addressed because it became much darker once um, spoilers in the fourth movie. Yeah, slash spoilers book. for a lot of things, guys. <laughs> Cedric Diggory was killed, and that was our first kind of real death in the books that weren't like that wasn't a that happened in the past. It was the, the first death that wasn't a villain, mm-hmm. I'd say, or weren't like just like a, a flashback to whatever past trauma that yeah. Harry uh, experienced. There, there and had... we sh- Go ahead. Yeah, and we should point out that a lot of adaptations that we're going to be talking about today could be considered children's books, 
the books themselves, but Hollywood tends to make them as young adult films mm-hmm. and skew them towards um, an older audience with still kids going to see them, but having some themes in there that trying to like get a wider audience, including older kids who won't look down on it as just a kid's movie. Yes, mm-hmm. and there's plenty, we're also going to be talking about plenty of adaptations that are definitely young adults that are, have main characters or 16 and up and that I, I'd say between 16 and 23 is like young adult, right? Like, <laughs> a little bit older, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. Like 20, 16 to 25. Yeah, like, probably. Range. So like, yeah. like the end of adolescence and the beginning of like mm-hmm. literally young adult. Um, so I think, uh, but yeah, with, with Harry Potter, we see the young adult genre start to take over Hollywood. Um, in a lesser way than the superheroes have suddenly taken over in like the past 10 years, but in the way that they become a force to be reckoned with. And a lot of people are kind of not really offended by it, but they aren't really happy with this whole takeover of the genre because they think it's taking away from like prestige flicks and that kind of thing. But it's, um, it's become, I think, much more rich than it used to be. Yes, I agree. Yes. I think because Harry Potter was, it was basically throughout the, the first decade of the new millennium, mm-hmm. it was just kind of, Harry Potter, Harry Potter, Harry Potter, Chronicles of Narnia, Harry mm-hmm. Potter, Harry Potter. Yeah, it was and at predominantly the very fantasy. End, at the very end, uh, at the, once the seventh book had been released, then we started seeing more adaptations that weren't Harry, more young adult adaptations that weren't Harry Potter that were like, we'll, we'll get into it, but Hunger Games happened very soon after Harry Potter mm-hmm. did. Yeah, we have like a fantasy, then we have to have the start of like this, the dystopian genre, and of course we have the supernatural with Twilight. We also have like the John Green, the John yeah. Green books. We have the romance now with John Green becoming very popular, and we have action adventure. So it's become like its own like mini Hollywood almost. It's just like made for a different audience. It's like a genre yeah. within genres, like a I, microcosm. You could say that. The young adult is a genre, but then there's subgenres like there's yeah. the young adult sci-fi, the young adult love romance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so exactly. Yeah. So why don't we first start off by talking about our three favorite young adult adaptations? Okay. Mm-hmm. Do we want to do? I don't know what you guys are doing, but um, I'm. Do we want to do our individual? Like, if, if it's a franchise, do we want to do an individual movie? Or an individual, or do we just do the series? You can do it however you series, like. Yeah, whatever you like. Yeah. Because like it, do- it doesn't matter to me. Like we could point out specifics we like, mm-hmm. um, because not everything in all these franchises are up to par. Mm-hmm. I'd say, even if they're good, like I'd say, um, yeah. So. Well, why don't you give your top three, Willoughby? Okay. I mean, say we, what you think we, about we, them. We might have some overlap. We probably overlap. There's probably some. Overlap. It happens. There's, there's overlap. Mm-hmm. Uh, so <laughs> the first one, I think we'd have. To, I'm, I'm going to go with Hunger Games because it's. Very straight up, young adult dystopian, uh, futuristic uh, genre. You know, I think that it really plays into the let's let's take these kids and throw them into hell and see what happens. And I think that and and over the course of the series, spoiler alert, things turn from just being the Hunger Games to a political and and uh, a political revolution in which. Katniss and the other members of the rebellion try to upend the uh, evil empire. I mean, Pan Am. Uh, <laughs> um, and so there's a lot of, like, I remember reading about the Hunger Games before I actually read the Hunger Games, and they were saying that it's like Harry Potter meets Spartacus. And I'm like, I think that's actually a very apt, dis- uh, an apt um, description of it, because 
it does go from being kind of like teens do uh, with other teens. Like the first two books are like uh, they're straight up in the Hunger Games, and then the third book is is more of Spartacus. It's more of one rebel leading this leading the charge, and then all hell breaks loose, and you don't know what you know who really wins in the end. No one knows. Yeah. Like it's it kind of they lead it open ended. Um, you know what. Who's in charge? Does it matter if it's good? Like, you know, is it still going to be the same shit a different day? So I think that The Hunger Games really does a good job of uh, bringing adult themes into uh, into a, uh, a series that kids can understand and learn more about uh, society and, like, a dark version. It's a dark version of a reality show. That's what The Hunger Games is. Mm-hmm. There's cameras everywhere. There's just... I, I think the books do a much better job of this at, at, of the movies. You can definitely tell in the books that every every single thing that Katniss and Peeta do, they're on screen for everyone else in Panem and the districts to watch. And that is clearly like a very dark version of the reality shows that we have today, where it's all like I think HT. Did you you watched Unreal, right? I loved Unreal. Yes. Anya, did you see it? I did not see it. I saw the first episode, so I, I I got to understand like everything is fabricated, and everything in the Hunger Games, like the actual games, is fabricated. And I think the movies did a really good job of showing that behind the scenes, with in the, especially in the first movie with um, Wes Bentley as uh, the the game maker, the head game maker, mm-hmm. where they just had holograms, and they were like, "Oh, why don't we set the forest on fire?" And they pressed a button, and the forest was on fire, and Katniss had to survive that. And they did that for for on camera entertainment. I think that they did a really good job in the movies of showing that version of it. But I think the mo- the books did a better job of showing the the societal issues uh, that we face in our in our in today's in today's world um, reflected in the Hunger Games. I think people don't give Hunger Games enough credit for being like such a meta commentary on like a lot of people's uh, dis- like unhappiness with like current society. Um, so it has like a lot of that um, those layers with the reality show commentary, but also kind of. Um, I'm sorry, I'm lo- I lost my train of thought. <laughs> That's okay. Um, there, yeah. So there's definitely like a commentary about reality TV mm-hmm. and uh, just like the 24/7 nature of the news mm-hmm. and how there's always something to latch onto and to to see and to like dissect and uh and pitting it's very dark i mean i know that it's like i know that they say that it's not inspired by battle royale but i've heard that battle royale and hunger games are very similar i watched battle royale they are they are but i mean battle royale is definitely not a kid's movie right um and it's a lot it i don't i wouldn't say it's darker because there are different themes in both and they're both equally dark but in different ways Mm -hmm. um on the surface I level, they're similar they're, because they're it's kids killing kids, that sort of deal. They're and it similar, has that reality but they're show. not. Um, yeah, but they're not exactly comparable because they're not doing the same thing. Okay. Um, no, it, like Battle Royale is less about the social commentary and more about kind of what we what would happen if we throw all these characters in together and tell them to kill each other. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it's it's definitely more of like a character study, I guess, or even just like this um, really chaotic. Battle Royale, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's a title, they, yeah. They didn't do, like, a political revolution in the no, end No, there's it. no political revolution. It's just kind of 
putting a camera onto like the worst of mankind and trying to expose that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's far more intimate. It just it mm-hmm. shows you what what can happen to perfectly normal people mm-hmm. if very, put in a situation like this. If yeah. anything, I would compare it more to like Lord of the Flies than I would to Hunger Games. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, which has Hunger Games also has lots of roots in um, Roman um, bread and circus. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, um, kind of things where they're like. To distract the masses with sort of these giant I mean, pan is literally yeah like it's literally like bread, bread. Yeah, yeah bread <laughs> yeah so uh, that was my first one I we sh- we won't talk so much about each one of us I'll, we'll dive d- deeper into into the, the conversation and we could thread these yeah. into it but uh, my other one that I liked um, I'd say the first Chronicles of Narnia book. Uh, the first Chronicles of Narnia movie, I should say, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, I know that the book, like we said earlier, it's uh, it was for kids. It was definitely a kids' book, but I think that the movie uh, there were some darker turns in the movie that I think were highlighted that were only briefly exposed in the book. Um, it was definitely like the witch's relationship with Edmund was very like it was much more darker and treacherous than I think the the book is about I, I, in the movie. I meant to say. Um, it's darker than the book, and I think that uh, there, like, there's much more power with Aslan, the Jesus Lion, with Liam Neeson voicing Aslan. I think that there's, there's, for some, to to me, it just seems like a much more adult, uh, a young adult movie than than the book itself. Excuse me. And what a wonderfully like magical film! Mm. I use the first Narnia is really great. Yes, you know, I always think of that like with the first Harry Potter. I think they were both fantastic introductions. I think they really capture... Cinematically. Yeah, they really capture the magic of reading those books and just kind of the wonder, the childhood wonder of seeing all these things for the first time, which... I I agree. I think both franchises get a little shakier as they go on, Mm -hmm. especially Narnia. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, there's a reason they haven't finished the Narnia franchise. Um, But the first films in both of those, I think, do a wonderful job of introducing the worlds. And I think... My last one might be a little controversial. Oh dear! It's Ender's Game. I never saw it. You never saw. I it. actually did watch it. I thought it was fascinating because I never read the books, and I was like, I could see the potential for it. And I heard like the books get even weirder because it's the, like a big time jump, and yes. it's about an adult well, Ender. And well, they like they do t- um, the re- the theory of re- relativity when it comes mm-hmm. to hyperspace. Yeah, uh, they take that to ex- in, to an extreme. But I liked. I actually could. I enjoyed the first movie. I read the book in ninth grade. That was one of the, like the English class books that we had to read. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really liked the book. I thought it was. Um, I mean, obviously the kids are very young, but it's definitely a, it's definitely a, a, a dark. A, it's a more adult book than a, than like a kids book. Like if mm-hmm. a five, if an eight year old couldn't read it, mm-hmm. um, the, there's a lot of adult themes in there. Um, you know, it's definitely a precursor to the Hunger Games with kids like fighting each other uh, in their like in space. Uh, it, they literally go to space cadet camp um, and they train to be these soldiers. Uh, and because the whole premise of Ender's Game, to, for those of you who may not know, uh, the basically Earth was attacked twice by an alien species that are very insect like and and hive minded and. Uh, we finally won, like, the second the second war was won by us, by, um, by a guy named Razor, uh, Mazer Rackham. He was, like, the hero of the war. Um, and then, like, 70 years, uh, some odd years later, 
Ender is this like in the movie he's older, but in the in the book he's very young, and he goes off to this battle camp and they in the in in space, and they learn to use gravity to their own uh, or or their lack of gravity to their own uh, advantage um, by going around these different um, like in this in this giant bubble of a of a of like a training center training center, and there's like different. Uh, like boxes they have to move around and then they like hit each other with like these like laser tag games that are like you know when you're hit you're frozen in in time and ender uses like frozen people to his advantage to like get around them and like use them as shields and it's very it's a tact it's all about learning tactic tactics and being a strategian uh, or a strategician and like all these different like it's all about basically it's base camp but it's space camp <laughs> um, it's space base camp yeah and you, you like you ender becomes a different person by the end of it uh and uh the, there's a twist to it that I won't reveal because it's actually a really great like holy shit twist mm-hmm. um that when you when you realize it you're like oh my god holy I, shit I actually uh, found oh continue and I I thought the movie did a really good job of kind of actually showing like they didn't they didn't dumb it down or neuter it in any, or neuter way. It in any way. They actually, you know, it was an Aza, Aza Butterfield did a really good job as Ender. Um, and Haley Steinfeld is his, uh, I, I, w- I would say work wife because they don't really have a relationship, but they're like, uh, like they're definitely like the best friends. Like they're, they're the Harry Hermione of the series. Um, and Ender, like he, he's got a lot of anger in him. Uh, and he uses it. He like kind of uses battle camp as like a way of expressing his anger um and harrison ford's in the movie and he does he does one of the he does a a pretty good job of being like the guy the the colonel who wants ender to be the best he can be is he cranky he is cranky he's playing the cranky Um, is viola davis is that viola davis in the movie I believe so. I believe be. it's Viola yeah, Davis. Yeah, yeah. So. so the two of them have a have an interesting dynamic that you know I never really think of Harrison Ford as as being like uh, like a military guy. Mm-hmm. Like he was in Apocalypse Now, but I think that's the only other military role he's been in. But he does a good job of being like a cranky old general um, who ha- is training this new group of soldiers, and he's actually pretty funny in it too. Sometimes um, he's got that like dad joke mentality at one point. Um, but I think the movie, the movie is a solid B, I'd say. The book is an A, the book, the movie is a B. Um, so the, yeah, the, I, I'd say it, I'd say, I mean, Harry Potter is definitely up there, but I think as a, as a, as a young adult franchise, um, Ender's Game, I think, is a little bit, it's much, it's got a much more political message, a much more serious political message than Harry Potter does, and I like that a little bit more. I think Ender's Game does a much better job of, making you realize how unsettling the whole situation is more than like Hunger Games does. Because Hunger Games, it's supposed to be children fighting children and you're supposed to be really disturbed by that. But being Hollywood casting, you end up seeing like 20-year-olds playing teenagers who are fighting children. And it doesn't like come across as like, yeah, it doesn't come across as like as disturbing as it's supposed to be in the books, which a lot of like the messages do get lost in like that adaptation of Hunger Games because I just, I think that like, it became very Hollywoodized. Yeah, Jennifer Lawrence doesn't look sixteen. Yeah, in or starving, years. or yeah. olive skinned. Yeah. Uh, um, but Aza nope. Butterfield, Aza Butterfield may be sixteen in the movie, or maybe sixteen in real life. But he's supposed to be like twelve, and he looks twelve, and he looks twelve. Like he's a young looking, like 
That's why I kind of wanted him yeah. for the younger Spider-Man. But, and Ender's um, Game does really great with, like, kind of bringing across this message of child soldiers, essentially. And even though they're in, like, this base camp where they're kind of playing the whole time, they still act like soldiers and they still... Um, Ugh, and without people get spoiling hurt. it, people there, get hurt. there is, like, it gets really dark and unsettling. And there I, there I, is I, a death. Yeah, I did, like, watching it, I was like, wow, this is much darker than I thought. And, like, I'm considering, like, all the controversy around, like, I think the author the being, author, like, homophobic. Yeah. I thought it would be much more, like, um, you know, like, vanilla in a way. Yeah. But it was just, like, it was very interesting. And I thought that it's unfortunate that a lot of young adults movies don't go in that direction to try to take it darker and try to, like, give that meta-commentary of, like, children are fighting our battles for us. And in that way that a lot of, I guess, young adult adaptations are kind of parallels for how we're coming of age and we're growing up in, like, this really chaotic world and we're trying to, like... I think Harry Potter does a good job of that. Harry Potter does a good job of that. Hunger Games, I think the book does a good job of that because, like, this whole trying to come into our own and, like, this whole, like, chaotic world and just mirroring the social, like, I don't know, chaos, like, dis- disturbing things that mm-hmm. happen. But I think Ender's yeah. Game as a movie and a book does a really mm-hmm. good job of conveying what you said, the child soldier mm-hmm. mentality. And, I, like, it's in the, it was written in the 80s during the Cold War, during detente with Russia, mm-hmm. um, and they they adapted for a, a world where the, where the Cold War has already ended. So Russia isn't a big, it's not a... It's, it was a Cold War metaphor, and now it's not. But I think they kept a lot of the mentality of the Cold War in the in the movie. Um, but I mean, they left out a lot of side plots with the with like the Russian hege- hegemony. Um, like none of that is in the movie. But there's a there's like this us or them mentality in the movie that I think uh, stays uh, from the adaptation of the book. Uh, so I mean, Anya, I would definitely give it a. Rec- I would, I would, you know, I think it's, I think it's available to stream. I'm not sure, but it's, it's, it's good. You know, if you have an it's afternoon, on cable. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, it's Harrison HT. Ford too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Harrison Ford is always a good reason. Um, HT, why don't you uh, go ahead and tell us your top three? Yeah. So Hunger Games was one of mine, despite my kind of reservations with it, because the books themselves are written in this kind of juvenile manner, and I thought, like, the concept was really great, but, and I read through them really quickly, but I didn't think that they were, like, you know, the best books I'd ever read, and, like, a lot of the adaptations for young adult books that I like, the books that I love, end up being very mediocre films, but I think Hunger Games is one of the few ones that actually transcends the book them, books themselves, despite losing some of the message. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the filmmaking is great, but the message is kind of lost, especially in the whole marketing scheme and the spe- and the fact that like there's going to be a Hunger Games theme park. That is ironic which, as hell. I know. I mean, uh, I do here. have to. I do have to say, in Mockingjay Part One, spoilers, they use the same marketing in the universe of the movie that the marketers uh, for Lion- Lionsgate use for advertising the movie. Yeah. The Mockingjay whistle is there. The uh, Everything, like the same graphic logos, I kind of find it kind of internally funny that they, they do it to kind of showcase, hey, we're doing the same thing in the movie that we're doing for the, for the marketing of the movie. <laughs> I don't know like, if it's intentional or not or unintentional. It's I, very, probably, I think it's very intentional. Yeah, but like, uh, yeah, Hunger Games, it, like, a lot of like, the marketing around it and kind of the hype around it gets, like, they kind of focus in on the fact that it's a female protagonist who can kick ass and shoot bow and arrows really well. 
and they they lose a lot of like the social commentary around it. They which, also very much and, highlight the love end up triangle. perpetuating that social commentary in their marketing of the movie. So it's it's an interesting dichotomy. Hunger Games holds an interesting place in my heart, but it's definitely one of the <laughs> one of the better better adaptations of Fair. movies, especially Fair. like the later films. So I think the first film was kind of shaky, but it got better actually as literally the shaky. Yeah, literally, literally shaky. <laughs> the cinematography, the first shot of Catching Fire, is a still shot of the sunrise, and I'm like. Thank you. Thank you. Like, they definitely got a different yeah. cinematographer for Catching Fire because uh, it's much more beautiful. Yeah, and I enjoy each movie more, like, the the next one after, like, the, yeah. the, than the previous one. Because, like, Mock and Part 1 was really good, and it really dealt, delved into uh, Katniss's PTSD a lot better than, like, even the books did, I think. Yeah. She was just very surly, and I didn't like her. <laughs> well, there, you go from an internal monologue to an externalization mm-hmm. of that. And Jennifer Lawrence, if anything, is great at externalization. Yes. So, what are your other two? <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. We're talking about Hunger Games a lot, but of course... I mean, it's, yeah. it's a big it's so, point. Yeah. It's funny, because I'm not a big Hunger Games fan, yeah. so... I mean, like, honestly, I have, like, you know, a, con- a shaky relationship with it at best, but I, I like it for what it is, and I like it for the kind of um, image that, or like the trend that it's brought across of like the strong female heroine. And despite the fact that she's not actually that strong of a heroine in terms of like writing and in terms of like how, what yeah. traditional like view of a strong female heroine is, it's, it's interesting. Anyways, yeah. Hunger Games, good movie, yep. mostly. <laughs> <laughs> um, my next one, of course, I have to mention Harry Potter, which, you know, started off as a children's book and a children's movie. And then just kind of the books and the tone of the books and the movies grew with the audience because you start reading it as a kid and then as you go get older, you kind of go through the same things that Harry does, but except everything that he goes through is just enhanced magically in both, on both, in both definitions. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's a really great coming-of-age film as well as, like, a great story itself and it's one of the few like original series that has kind of unified as much of the world as anything else the only people who don't like harry potter are the people who think it's evil Mm -hmm. or people who are too old to like harry potter when it first came out yeah um so do you like the movies then i do like the movies i actually am a defender of the movies because i know that a lot of, of book readers do not like them because they are just like very different and totally different sometimes. But I think as films, they stand on their own. They're, I agree. Mm-hmm. And like yeah. my favorite film actually is Seven Part One, Deathly Hallows Part One. Mine too. Because I do not actually like Deathly Hallows, um, the book, as much because it was very different than the rest of the Harry Potter books. And it dragged on and it was kind of... Yeah, it was well, because they got rid of the dynamic of going to school. Got, they got rid of that structure, but I think that actually helped it in the movie because you got oh, yeah. to see more of the characters develop and grow outside of kind of the stuffy nature of the school structure, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think that the books, while they have their flaws, I think J.K. Rowling has constructed one of the best book series of all time. Of Not just in terms of, you know, financially or critically, mm-hmm. but... What she says and her political and social commentary, Harry Potter, is brilliant. She expertly crafted that series, mm-hmm. despite its flaws. It's a modern and classic. And yes, I know, we have definitely issues with the flaws. Mm-hmm. We do. Yeah. But I think, overall, those are not... Egregious. 
Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think overall, you can kind of you can kind of look look past them mm-hmm. to because the good Some outweighs the good mm-hmm. outweighs the bad. It's masterful storytelling. It's. Yes. I mean, she oh. to spoil the seventh book, she had Grindelwald in the first book when reading off the the trading card on Dumbledore mm-hmm. in the Chocolate Frog. Like she had it planned out from mm-hmm. the very beginning. Yeah, no, maybe she not knew maybe not too. everything, <laughs> but she knew basic things that she was going to bring up later. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, and I think the I think the movies do a good job of bringing the world to life. The issues that I have with the with the movies are the little things I think that we all have like just like the tweaking of Hermione's character from like they basically gave her all of Harry and Ron's good elements. And they took Ron and just made Ron him the bumbling terrible. sidekick. Yeah. Uh, who says something funny every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Um, it is terrible. Well, Steve Cloves, like, his screenplays are not fantastic. And, he was, is he, it, well, and he was an obvious Harry Hermione shipper, so he yeah, definitely gave Hermione obviously. all the great The elements. other issue is that the movies were coming out and the book series hadn't been finished yet. Mm-hmm. So... I don't think the filmmakers knew that Ron and Hermione were going to end up together, even though it's pretty sure that they. Well, they were hinted at it in the third How movie. Not they yeah. hinted at it pretty early on. Yeah. Um, but they were like, "We don't know Harry and Hermione should be together because there's that one scene in Goblet of Fire when they're like across on the on either side of the curtain, and it looks like they're, you know, having like a, some romantic encounter, but they're really not. And it's ironic that Rita Skeeter was doing the same thing that the filmmakers were doing. Like, Harry and Hermione are mm-hmm. going to be together. Like, Harry's plus one to the dinner. Like, uh, no, stop it. Mm-hmm. Um, Tune oh, back in also, every week for Willoughby's great impersonation of Rita Skeeter. Also, <laughs> they butchered Ginny Weasley's character. Oh, I mean, I never liked Ginny that much in the books to begin with because I always felt like she was just kind of inserted in. But she, in but she had a character. She had a character, but it was just like, I don't. I just didn't think she was a real character. She only, she didn't have any flaws. She kind of That's was true. like all the things that Harry loved in one person. And but, but just, the movie had there was no, there was nothing there. There's nothing there. <laughs> he was she, making out with a cardboard. <laughs> and, like the one scene where she's like zip me up, and he's like, do what? Should I? <laughs> oh, okay. And then one of the twins was like. Morning, mm-hmm. and it like I we've I, obviously I, all seen the movie. I really love I love Morning. seven part one. I love seven part one. Mm-hmm. I think that I think it's the best Harry Potter movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I just think that there's like there's flaws, but I think overall the series like I could like every ABC Family Harry Potter weekend mm-hmm. it's on my TV. You mean every weekend? You mean every week? Every week it's Harry Potter hashtag Harry Potter forever. Like I, I I'll watch it anytime. You know. Yeah, and um, just as much as Harry Potter was kind of that bridging franchise between children's movies for us and like the young adult genre for us, I think it was definitely that in Hollywood as well because it was it kind of the last couple movies created the mold, I guess, for like what we think of as the modern young adult film mm-hmm. kind of like. And we'll get into that. In a yeah, bit. we'll definitely get into that. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> All right. So what's Talking your last Potter. pick? My last one is an unusual one because I actually. I only caught this movie first time in, like, parts. And I was watching it on cable, and I was kind of like, oh, okay, this is not bad. But it's The Maze Runner, which I've never read the books for, but I caught it on cable, and it really intrigued me because it was different than a lot of the Hunger Games knockoffs that we've seen because of, like, the whole surge of the young adult dystopian genre and everyone wanting to cash in on that franchise. But it was... um, Maze Runner starring Dylan O'Brien and uh, who directed it? I should have written it down. But it's um, 
the first in like I'll look it up. Okay, you thank you. Um, it's about like this boy who wakes up one time one day in like the middle of this maze or like this clearing that's in the middle of the maze, and it's got like this Lord of the Flies slash this the prisoner vibe, and it's kind of this very um, I don't know contained movie that is very different than kind of the whole political commentary films that we've been seeing or like the whole love triangle uh, centric movies that we've been seeing. And I liked it a lot because of like that weird like clash between personalities and kind of the very unique premise that it has. Um, So basically he wakes up in like this clearing in the middle of the maze and like they go through the maze every time and it's like it changes on itself. It's like it's a big labyrinth. And um, they don't know who they are or why, why they're there, and they have no memories before they woke up. They all woke up in this maze, and um, they are being hunted by basically these very demonic-looking spiders every night. And there are people who run through the maze to try to gather food or try to explore to find a way out, but they've been basically been stuck there for months. And he, this boy, I honestly forgot his name. Um, oh, are you talking about uh, Dylan O'Brien's character in his, the movie? His name is. Uh, who is he? I'm looking it up. Oh no, I think his name is Thomas. Thomas. Yes. Yes. And the director is Wes Ball. Wes Ball, who I don't think he, I've seen any. Of he's only directed before. the Maze Runner and the Maze Runner sequel. Mm-hmm. Um, but after he wakes up, he ends up there. Uh, it's only guys there in the entire maze, and then then a couple days later. Kayla Scoladario's um, character wakes up, and she's, like, the only, the first girl there. And then she has a note saying uh, she's the last one ever. And it becomes, like, this gigantic bottle episode. Anyways, it's, like, a very interesting sci-fi type of film that borrows a lot of elements from, like, other great sci-fi series that I think they really succeeded in doing and didn't have, like, that whole premise of brunette girl has special powers and can punch the world and save the world. In a community in a community divided by emotions. In a community divided by emotions where like the society immediately labels you and puts you off in like its own little container. When you turn eighteen, right? Mm-hmm. No no, I really liked it because it just kind of was a great Yeah, Lord of the Flies basically a remake of that. And it was it's very interesting. And it turns out that there's like a big greater big conspiracy of course. And there's always, like, a woman like a, with a severe haircut who is, um, you know, redirecting everything like they do, like they do in, like, the most recent dystopian movies. But mm-hmm. I don't know. It's it's good. I would recommend it. I haven't seen any of the sequels, like the Scorched Trials. Scorched Trials. That came out this year, right? Yeah. I think that's the year, only right? sequel that's been made yet. Yes. Yeah. But I think it's one of the most, the more original dystopian films that I've seen hmm. out of, like, I know that it was, it was parodied along with Divergent and Hunger Games in the SNL sketch, like, last year. Oh, I haven't seen that sketch. Um, where they kind of do, like, a combination. It, they basically just parody all the tropes of uh, different YA dystopian films into mm-hmm. one parody trailer. It's, I, we, we, should re- we should link it in the, uh, the blog post, but it's, it kind of showcases everything that's kind of wrong mm-hmm. with the with these with uh or what's like 
at what what every jo- every movie has like the same tropes. Yeah, um, I would de- I would defend Maze Runner though because at least in the first film, it isn't about like the political overarching scope of like the whole world. It's just about like these specific characters stuck in a situation that they can't get out of, and they're being hunted and ter- terrorized by like unseen forces. And it's a very like original, unique unique story, at least like in a movie telling movie telling perspective. Cool. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm going to veer entirely in another direction mm-hmm. uh, and talk quickly about some of my favorites. Um, and I'm going to do something that's not fantasy, not sci-fi uh, movies that are based entirely in real life. What's real life? I know. <laughs> um, and it's funny because books like these, I don't typically tend to enjoy a lot. Like mm-hmm. I, when I read books, I, I like to go for more fantasy sci-fi mm-hmm. books. Um, but if a movie can do a real life story well, it can really suck me in. And I think those can be especially poignant for young adults. Um, because sci-fi and fantasy, while they can have their political and social commentaries, which are great, I think there's something else about a real life movie for young adults. Um, like and so fun. three of my favorites, because I love a lot of the ones that you guys have mentioned, mm-hmm. Narnia, Harry Potter, etc. Um, but three of my favorites would probably be uh, the Princess Diaries, which I think is a great film for us millennials. Very relatable. One part. that we hold very fondly. To Are you our talking heart. about the series or just the, the just the first film? Just or? the first movie. Okay. Just the first Anna Hathaway film, mm-hmm. which is great. Um, although her and Chris Pine are adorable in the sequel. Um, <laughs> Chris Pine. Chris Pine before he was Chris Pine. Before too. he was yeah. Captain James T. Kirk of the USS Enterprise. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then the second one would be Holes. With Shia LaBeouf, I love that which movie. I think was a great film. Mm-hmm. I yeah, that so film is great. It's great. So um, and then the last one, which is probably my favorite, would be Perks of Being a Wallflower mm. uh, with Logan Lerman, Emma Watson, Ezra Miller. I I remember seeing that film in theaters, and I remember leaving like I had been touched had, had you very read deeply the, by that you, film. I'm sorry. Have you read the the book before you you watched? And the movie? I have I have read the book for yeah. Perks of Being a Wallflower. Um, I have not read any of the Princess Diaries books, which makes me feel kind of bad, but (laughs) the movie, the movie is great and very fondly remembered. Um, but I think Perks of Being a Wallflower especially is a really strong film Mm -hmm. for young adults. It deals with some very mature themes in good ways. And I think Logan Lerman is fantastic in that film. Mm-hmm. He's excellent. Perfect. Um, I, I, I saw it, uh, I read the book a couple years ago. And then I watched the movie when it came out on DVD, uh, and I, I I thought that the the adaptation from book to film was great. And I think you actually have a couple couple common like holes and uh, perks of being wallflower were made. The movies were made by their authors, or at least yeah. was, holes was written by the screenplay was written by the author of the book. So yeah. I think that when you get the, the 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 author to adapt their material into a movie, I think you get a better movie. Mm. Um, yeah. So, yeah, sorry. No, yeah, so um, those are just the three I wanted to mention. Um, to, like we talked about subgenres, and this is a subgenre. And while the books themselves don't always interest me interest me as much as, say, like, the Harry Potter books, because, again, I'm more fantasy-prone book reading-wise, mm-hmm. the movies, I think, are very powerful. And I think Holes is one of the few perfect adaptations of books that I've seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, the, and the changes they made are changes that were necessary. You mm-hmm. couldn't have... Stanley Yelnats be this 250 pound kid the, the entire time because they film out of order. 
you wouldn't be able to have him lose weight in a linear fashion. Like it makes sense to, to cast someone who looks like Shia LaBeouf to be in that in that role because honestly, they take out, they took out everything related to his weight, and it, it's the, the movie still holds up because he's an awkward duck. Mm-hmm. I think that's the only movie that I actually like Shia LaBeouf in. Oh, it's his best role. It's definitely it, his it best is. role. He's done some like more dramatic stuff, but it's his best role. Like it is it hands is. down. Like. Even Stevens holes. That's it. So, I think now we should get into a discussion about why sometimes young adult movies don't work. And we can mention kind of our least favorites as we discuss. Yes, I agree. Um, and I want to just start off by saying something that Willoughby just said. And that I am a big defender of book-to-movie adaptations and them making changes. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think people... Re- people who complain about them, I don't think, realize that books and movies are two completely very different, different mediums. Very different mediums. It is a two-hour film. You cannot cover everything. Mm-hmm. Um, what's always important to me is that they capture the theme and the spirit of the book rather than every single plot point. Very true. Which I agree. Which I think is that. so much more important in a book-to-movie adaptation. Mm-hmm. And if they change things... But I understand why, from a filmmaking point of view, I'm not going to... I'm not going to be angry about it, as long as they get the characters right and the themes, which is why the Percy Jackson film, and I'm a bit, I love the Percy Jackson series, I think it's so much fun, um, which is why the movie is not great. Which one? The, but the it's first one? The first one? one. The second one's pretty bad. Okay. <laughs> the second one's pretty bad. The I've actually one, seen both, and I yeah. thought that they were interesting, but Decent. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't not, say they're, they're awful. They're not great. Um, the second one is worse than the first one. The first one is fun. Um, they're kind of inoffensive, really. Well, the best word it's Chris Columbus doing Chris Columbus. Yeah. Yeah, but he did so much better with Harry Potter. Oh, like, oh, you look at definitely. Harry Potter and you look at the first Percy Jackson, and it's like two completely different directors. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that's Chris Columbus for you. He also did Pixels, so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, um, he started out great with Home Alone and just got, and yeah. Young Sherlock Holmes. Was that him? Did he do Young Sherlock Holmes? I don't remember. Because it looks like it's, it's, a, it's a precursor to Harry Potter, definitely. Yeah, so, like, you know, I feel like they capture a lot of the spirit of Percy Jackson, which is why they can be fun and not very offensive, but they're not fantastic films in terms of their actual filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have things like that, but then you have films that completely fail, like The Golden Compass. I... Which I think that's that. a good starting off, like, Yeah, point. so now we're going to talk about... We're going to do a broader discussion of the young adult genre, which we, I mean, we've been talking about it the entire time, mm-hmm. but we'll, we're going to go into broad strokes now. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm going to talk specifically about The Golden Compass first, because yes. the His Dark Material series is one of my favorite series ever. Fantastic. I, when I first read it in sixth grade, I didn't really understand it, so I made a point of rereading it every year until I did. And mm-hmm. then it actually became one of my traditions that I would just reread the series every year because it was my favorite series. That's so great. I, I didn't understand it when I first read it, too. I did not yeah. read it every year, but I did go back and visit it a couple years back, and I was blown away by how incredible it was. Yes. I have never read it. Okay, so His wow. Materials is a trilogy by Philip Pullman, and it's set in an alternate, or like parallel universe, um, kind of steampunk, Oxford, uh, I think eight, late 1800s. Yeah. Yeah, and... Um, the main character is Lyra, and here in this world, everyone has um, a demon. It's like spelled D-A-E-M-O-N. And it's kind of like an externalization of like their consciousness, almost. It's like your soul like your in soul. an animal. Yeah, and it like always hangs out with you. It's like, you know, the witch's demon where they're like oh, kind like of there. Like a familiar. Like a familiar, yeah, exactly. So 
everyone has one, and if you are ever, like, cut off from it, then you basically die. You become a vegetable. And um, it the, the first book delves into, like, these child kidnappers who are taking children and experimenting on them and their demons. And, and it becomes, like, this whole overarching parallel world. We jump to, like, this other character named Will, who is, set, who is in our world, and he's, like, dealing with dark matter and stuff like that and it becomes like this science fiction slash fantasy series and he and Lyra end up like meeting up in like another alternate world and it becomes not only like an extension of like this like philosophical exploration of our souls and consciousness but also of religion and it's a very it's a very atheist book which is part of the reason. There's controversy around it and they often pit this against Chronicles of Narnia. Mm -hmm. Which is overtly a religious. Yeah. I mean C.S. Lewis was devoutly Christian. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's part of the reason why the movie adaptation did not do well, because the Catholic Church was vehemently against this book series and the adaptation of it. And everyone basically agreed that the movie ended up being neutered despite the amazing casting, because Nicole Kidman was uh, Mrs. Coulter, who was like this really icy, frigid, powerful woman and beautiful. And Daniel Craig was Lord Asriel, who was the counterpoint of her, basically, the male counterpoint. And Lyra was this newcomer, Dakota Johnson. No, not Dakota Johnson. Um, Dakota, something, something. Not yeah, Dakota I Fanning, forget. Right? Some, it was Dakota something. I think. Yeah, it's it not Dakota Fanning. Fan, no, not Fanning or Johnson. Or Johnson. No. Two, two very different people. It's one that you've never heard of because yeah. after this, you never you see her failed. again. I know. Yeah. And she was great in it. Um, I almost wonder if it just... So we're all very excited because it was BBC? BBC. BBC. BBC announced they're adapting it for a... Is it a miniseries or a TV show? A like, miniseries. A miniseries. Mm-hmm. Which I think, given how complex this trilogy is, I almost wonder if, despite the good intentions of the film, um, you have the whole Catholic Church, you know, vehemently against it, which did not help. But I almost wonder if it was just a bit too complex for... You can yeah, have definitely. complex movies. Yeah. But I just don't think they handled... The complexities of the book well in the film and I kind of I have a feeling that long form of a miniseries is going to be better for this trilogy and I think it was also the timing in which it was made which was post Harry Potter and everyone was trying to find the next Harry Potter series and they're basically like creating it in the mold of Harry Potter kind of like, and, and Chronicles of Narnia and Chronicles of Narnia just like a bunch of children setting off on adventure and they get embroiled in like a, a larger like adventure but there isn't anything beyond that junior joseph Campbell. yeah exactly and then like in the we get like hunger games which is a bit more complex but still like the complexity does get lost in that adaptation so i don't even know if like as of now we're ready for a golden compass as a film or even as a series because i'm a little bit nervous for the series too because big bbc series tend to be low budget and i don't think like golden compass will rely that much the historic material series will rely that much on budget but i feel like to create that rich of a world and like well all their budget goes to doctor doctor who right now yeah that's true (laughs) and sherlock yeah Yeah. i mean like it's basically unfortunately i feel like as long as you that's another discussion yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah. we can definitely talk about that later but i feel like as long as you captured like the steampunk um image well then it'll be fine but yeah there's like talking polar bears and stuff um which can end up looking very cheesy and it did end up looking cheesy in the movie so like you know the coca-cola polar bear basically and i am nervous i don't i feel like almost that this series is like unadaptable because of like it's 
audience was in t- was originally like for children and for young adults, but it ended up going into like really dark and really mature themes. And I have like a big passion for this series. I don't want it to like die again. So let me let me bring up this question. Would you say that there are some uh, young adult books that should not have ever been made into movies because a lot of them have a lot of, unadaptable books. a lot of them are doa they're dead on arrival mm-hmm. like uh, like av club has a list of 21 movies that were supposed to launch franchises that failed because the movies were so terrible i um, think a lot of the reason that these franchises fail is because they're trying to make them in the image of the first successful franchise so after harry potter we got a lot of fantasy knockoffs trying to make the next Harry Potter. After Hunger Games, we got a lot of um, Hunger Games knockoffs, the YA dystopian genre that is still going on. And like getting Divergent. Divergent. Like Shailene Woodley is, is, uh, really is trapped in this world mm-hmm. for the next two to three years. Yeah. And they keep making movies about Divergent, which is honestly, like, mediocre at How best. much money are they making? I don't know. I don't think the they second like, one did well. I saw the first one. They have I an all-star I, cast, too. I saw it on HBO at some point. Mm-hmm. Divergent is so cookie-cutter and when it comes to, it's, it's like we're going we're gonna, to, after a war, after a, the apocalypse, we've, we've rebuilt society in different clusters. We're, we're basing everything on different emotions. If you're, if you're a nice person, you're an erudite, or like, or I don't even know. It's like, combining all of like the, the elements of like Harry Potter sorting hat like, with like the Hunger Games, like female heroine can punch things magically and make things better. If you think about it, the, the districts are split up into different like, how, how, houses, basically. Houses. Uh, the districts in Hunger Games are different, like, colonies. Like, uh, Katniss lives in the coal mining company. Mm-hmm. There's, like, um, uh, different, like, farming districts. There's mm-hmm. the industrial district. There's mm-hmm. the dam district. Like, there's a... And then District 13, the... Uh, spoiler District 13 was the military district. So, so, basically, these films, and the books sometimes themselves, too, are too similar. They're, mm-hmm. they're trying to base themselves on what has succeeded in the past and thereby they become boring and formulaic and not exciting anymore. And then the ones that are completely original and exciting, like his dark materials mm-hmm. are maybe too complex to be adapt to be adaptable in a good way. Yeah. They just basically try to streamline it. And the thing is with all, with all these like adaptations that are trying to re- replicate the success of the original is that they're losing what, people were interested in the first place. So they, they see, like, these elements are like, okay, a strong female protagonist who is a brunette and is an action hero who can kick butt. There's a love triangle. There is, like, a dystopian uh, society that divides people by labels when everyone should be free and there should be free will. They should be divergent. But the thing is, like, those aren't the reasons that people go to see these movies. They see them for more than just the elements of that make up the movies. And but, they like, read the, the books char- Yeah, they want to see the characters who are, like, more original and actually bring these stories to life, and they want to see more of that social commentary because they want that outside of, like, you know, their own life and, like, see that in, like, a fantastical context. So it's just, I mean, it's, like, part of the Hollywood machine. It's not, like, the genre itself to blame. But, yeah, it's it's definitely, like, a problem. And and they should be entertaining and fun. And mm-hmm. I when I watched Divergent, I thought ever, no one looked like they were having a fun time making the film. Mm-hmm. Even if the, if it's a dark movie, that sometimes you can tell that you could see that the the actors and the filmmakers are having fun with it. Mm-hmm. And they look like and they look like they're doing a good job and they're like but like like there's no chemistry mm-hmm. between Shailene Woodley and, and what's his guy. face? Tris. 
Tris. I actually do. No, Tris is her name. Oh, and then his name, his <laughs> name, his name is Four. But it's, because they choose but their it, names because free will. But it's not the oh, it's not the te- it's not the movie. I am number four. That's another discussion. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm gonna transition this um, the molding these actually great series into the image of the original ser- original successful franchise to talk about the worst offender, The Giver. So another book yeah. that is close to my heart because I read it back when I was a kid and. It was actually like the book was one of the predecessors to the young adult dystopian genre. It was written, I think, like in the 80s. Yes. Yes. I believe it is. It was written in the 80s, and it basically describes um, this boy who lives in, like, you know, an ideal world. Like, you don't see anything wrong with it. And, and like, at a certain age, I think, like, at 11, he gets, you get chosen to, like, go to a certain career. And you go through, like, this test and stuff like that. And he gets chosen to be, like, the receiver of memories. And he meets this man called the Giver who, like, holds all the memories of humanity's history. Because what you realize is that this world has actually been depleted of all emotion and all memory of pain and suffering, but also joy and anything above, like, um, a blank face. And... um, and if I'm correct, color, too. And color. And you don't realize this until he starts receiving these memories. Uh, you don't realize that the whole world is in black and white until he, like, one day has received, like, a new memory and he sees, like, um, an apple. And it looks different for him for the first time. And he's like, what's weird? That's weird. What's, why, why is it different? And it turns out it's red. And what I love about this series is that it created this whole dystopian uh, society without you realizing it. And it also echoed kind of this coming of age because you realize the same time that he does that there's something wrong with this world and it's like this loss of innocence at the same time as just kind of a realization that everything is not right with the world and you I like that you get to realize that with him and it just like com- the movie completely loses that yeah let's talk about why the movie <laughs> because is the worst <laughs> it was created in the vein of a Hunger Games knockoff which means they have to age up the protagonist from 12 years old to a, a healthy 16-year-old played by a 24-year-old. <laughs> I don't think he was 24, was he? He, was like, he looked like he was 24. But he was, he was, they definitely aged up the characters. Yes, so they could create a love triangle. Because one of the scenes in the book is that he has his first like wet dream as a kid, and then like the, he gets like a pill to basically um, get rid of like his wet dreams and like any sort of like pubescent... Um, urges that he gets and he just stops taking them at some point and he like continues getting like these wet dreams and like these fantasies about this one girl with like red hair because he like sees red so vibrantly and everything like that and in the movie they create this this love triangle between him and this girl and it just becomes completely generic and I love the book because also it ends on like this really ambiguous note of whether like he escapes or not or like whether he comes like real to this like higher level of understanding and yeah it just becomes another action adventure trying to fight the world and restore balance when in fact it's just and, Mer- a- and sorry and Meryl, Meryl Streep plays the icy head figure of the of the society with a severe in the haircut vein, in the vein of Kate Winslet in Divergent mm-hmm. of well there's really no one like that in well, Hunger Games um, President Coin President Coin yeah. in Mockingjay mm-hmm. she's uh, actually President Coyne and Mockingjay and Meryl Streep and 
uh, well, Julianne Moore is, is President Coyne, and they have very similar hairstyles. Same haircut. It's like the severe haircut. You know exactly what that character is. And Nicole Kidman <laughs> in The Golden Compass. Oh, she was different. Or, oh, no. she was different? Okay. She had, like, a, the classic, like, 40s glam haircut. Oh, okay. Yeah. But she, she was, was, like, a, her personality was icy. Well, no, I would say that. I would argue that she's more complex, but the movie didn't oh, okay. bring the that movie across. did that. The movie didn't do that. <laughs> yeah. I've, again, I haven't but seen the movie. But she's far before. more complex. Yes. Okay. Oh, definitely. She's more like an anti-hero in that other case. But The Giver is special because it's a great coming-of-age movie, coming-of-age book at the same time as being a dystopian book. And you, and they completely, like, jeopard, like ruin that and butcher it in, and, the, in the movie. And I'd say... Uh, and I actually... Okay. <laughs> Disclosure, I actually have not seen the movie. I have. HT. <laughs> I have seen the movie, so I can verify but everything she's saying. As seeing the previews and seeing like clips of it, I deemed that it was not worth my time. I was angry from the start that they aged him up because it completely loses the message of the book. And just ended up being it got John Carter of, of Mars That's, in yeah. that like it was one of the orig- origins of this genre and it ended up just looking like another knockoff. And for those of you who don't know, what happened with John Carter is that there is a series of books written in the early 20th century about this man who go who is transported to Mars, and it, he's his name is John Carter, and he deals with a lot of uh, Joseph Campbell type her- heroic journey. Uh, sort of like action adventure that uh, was the basis for a lot of modern sci-fi, sci-fi uh, such as Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of like, there's a princess, there's a, there's like a, a hero, there's like a, and there's a lot of things that we now see in everything that we see. And by the time Disney decided to make John Carter a movie, it became just another rehash, just another rehash of things that, <laughs> ironically, it inspired. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the book inspired. So I think that The Giver is a perfect example of that when it comes to young adult literature, mm-hmm. where it spawned all these different things that we love, and then when they finally do an adaptation of it, it just becomes a rehash of everything we love um, in its worst uh, in its worst manifestation. And it was original because it wasn't societal commentary, but a character study and a metaphor for coming of age. <laughs> there you go. So... There's this terrible offense which happens when you have very good source material mm-hmm. and they ruin it on screen. Mm-hmm. But then you have the other terrible offense when you work with terrible source material in the first place. Okay. Because you have like Fifty Shades of Grey, which huge smash at the box office, mm-hmm. but terrible source material mm-hmm. that first off is based on fan fiction. Of Twilight. Twilight. Fan fiction is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Fan fiction is great. It is so awesome for fans to be able to explore different ideas, hone in their writing skills. Fan fiction is fantastic. And but in this regard... Sorry, go ahead. I'm, it's I'm, not great. Plus you have the fact that it's abusive and manipulative and a terrible story with terrible characters. Mm-hmm. And Which it's awful. Twilight was to begin with, too, but yeah. it was hidden underneath the sparkly vampires and the messages of chastity. Exactly. I mean, Twilight is equally as manipulative mm-hmm. and terrible. Um, Stalkers. So you have that that did really well, but then you also have someone, and this is similar in that vein, you have someone like Cassandra Clare, who wrote the Mortal Instrument series, and I believe only one movie was made. I yes. believe, and, and they did a colon, the Mortal Instruments City of Bones. So yeah. they did a Pirates of the Caribbean, the Curse of the Black Pearl, making it seem like there's going to be more of them. 
Uh, I haven't seen any previews for well, any the more. Well, the movie didn't do well. Right, the right. movie didn't do well, so they weren't going to make any. But, I mean, Divergent didn't really do well. They're still making more of it. Yeah, but, I mean, I think... So, Mortal Instruments, for those who don't know, Cassandra Clare... So, this is another case of having terrible source material to work with. For people who don't know, if you want to have one of the most thrilling reads of your life, go on Google and read the story of Miss Scribe, okay. who was a big-name person in the Harry Potter fandom back in the day. And she caused all sorts of problems. Like, seriously, read this. It is, it's very long, but you will not be bored for a minute of it. <laughs> she caused so many problems. And one of the people she was related with was Cassandra Clare, back in the day, who was writing Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings fan fiction. And she was pretty popular in those fandoms as well. And one of the things you will learn about Cassandra Clare is that she plagiarized a lot. And it continued on into her published work of The Mortal Instruments. I think I heard about this, actually. Yeah, Cassandra Clare is... So her fanfiction was plagiarized of other fanfiction? Well, no, so she wrote fanfiction, fan like, original fanfiction, but she plagiarized other source material in her fanfiction. Oh, so she, like, took, like, direct lines and everything? Yes. Okay. Oh, direct, and, and it's direct like characters. She, it's not like she took, like... Well, Harry and Hermione go off on an adventure in yeah, like, America. Yeah, like, like, fanfiction is not plagiarism. It's the fact that, like, she literally lifted word-for-word passages from published works. Ooh. Um, and she's done the same things in her own published works in The Mortal Instruments. And she's not a great writer, and you can tell. And you have these things where they come from these not-respectable writing backgrounds where they are plagiarizing and they're causing all sorts of internet drama. I just have a lot of issues with Cassandra Clare. <laughs> they're not, it's not great. She's and I not think, great. And I think that that is a case of karma doing its work where a terrible book is made into a terrible movie, and that terrible movie doesn't make a franchise. Yeah, and I but think, everyone go read the Miscribe story. Okay. Including you two. It is fantastic. It should be like a yearly read. Yeah, we'll, we'll, link it, we'll link it in the blog post with this. We will. We will. Yes. Uh, I think that... We should we should talk about Aragon, guys. We need, oh dear, we need to talk about Aragon for a second. Oh yeah. yeah. Speaking of lifting ideas exactly straight out of better source material. So let's say you have a story in which there's a young farmer <laughs> who meets an old man, an old wise man who's a bit of a wizard, and he tells this young boy that he is a that he is different, that he is special, that he is a hero, um, and that he he must come with him on a journey to this other place. Um, and along the way, you learn about this dark, terrible, terrible mastermind of this terrible purge of these great warrior monks who who are fantastic and have magical powers. And, uh, well, guys, let's stop talking about Star Wars and talk about Aragon. Uh, <laughs> oh, wait, it's the same my, story. Here's my question. Obviously, Star Wars is the hero's journey. Obviously, yeah. And so many other young adult novels, especially fantasy and sci-fi, are the hero's journey. Mm-hmm. So, is do you find Aragon is just doing another hero's journey, or do you find that it is specifically lifting from Star Wars? It is specifically lifting from Star Wars because because I forget his name, but the guy that is supposed to be this dark he, he's a combination of the Emperor and Darth Vader, where he was. The, this brash, young, awesome dragon rider, 
When I'm talking about Murtaugh Army, Murtaugh's literally no. the only one I know because he was played by Garrett Hedlund. No, we're like, talking back in the we're day. Talk, we're talking That's about all I know. We're talking about Murtaugh's, and he was pretty cute. We're talking about Murtaugh's father, who I think is also Aragon's father, the Darth Vader character. Right? Aren't they related? Yeah, they're related. They're like brothers. Of course they are. And and the evil twin. Mur- oh, yeah. So uh, okay, can someone look? I'm gonna look up. Uh, the Aragon series. Because While Willoughby is looking this up, I just have, need everyone to know that currently HT is losing it. <laughs> he is, like, doubled over with laughter. Yeah. Because this is what Aragon does to people. Okay. I also need to, uh, regarding Aragon, I need to name drop Wizard of Earthsea um, by Ursula K. Le Guin, which is an incredible fantasy um, series from, like, the 60s. And it was kind of like the, a lot of the, it was kind of in the early modern fantasy era like Lord of the Rings and that kind of thing and it's a she's a great female writer as well but um a lot of elements from that are lifted into Aragon because there's like a very important there's a hero's journey but there's important about naming things which I think also makes its way into Aragon it's like one of the prime points actually and it is definitely like straight from Wizard of Sea, which is a far superior book and not enough people have read it and everyone should read Ursula Le Cay Le Okay. Everyone go read it. So Aragon, Aragon is, okay, the, the king, the evil king, who is the emperor, oh, the motion sensor in our room just turned off, uh, King Galbatorix. <laughs> Good thing this is not our Halloween episode. <laughs> king Galbatorix uh, was once a, uh, for, he was a former dragon rider who turned evil, now in alliance with dark magic. That is the exact same thing as a former Jedi who turned evil and is now in alliance with the dark side like there is he literally slaughtered all his other dragon riders to become this evil king and like everything about aragon is just lifted lifted from superior source material superior source material there's a twist about the father like there's brahm is uh who, who jeremy irons play i love jeremy irons but Oh man, they dragged, him, here? they dragged him into it. <laughs> uh, Brom plays the Obi-Wan Kenobi character who literally dies at the same exact point that Obi-Wan dies in the movie. Like, and there's a princess who's really not a princess. Like, she's this, but, like, Ar- Princess Arya. And, you know, Aragorn has to find her and, like, save her from King Galbatorix. It's literally a new hope. Like, and it's not even a well-made It's not even a well-made <laughs> adaptation if it's an adaptation. Like, this kid, Christopher Maloney. No. Pauline. What? Paolini, Christopher, Christopher Paolini. Paolini. He wrote it when he was, what, 15? 15 years old. Yeah, and then they, he got, I think he was self-published, and then they re- made it a real deal. And the, it was supposed to be a trilogy. He ended up making, what, four books, I think? I never read he the made, third he, and fourth one. Yeah, and, like, it's all about the, like, even the, like, and then the second book delves into, like, elves and more of the Lord of the Rings stuff uh, that, that, you know, like, there's a lot of, like, elven lore in there, but... The first book is so Star Wars to, like, cookie cutter. You know, I actually wasn't that offended by it when I first read it. Like, I enjoyed the book and oh, I, enough to buy the second one. I enjoyed the book when I read it the first yeah. time. And then, and I understood the references they were making. And I was like, oh, that's cute. But then, like, I, I kind of read into it more. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, this she just shit straight up, at like, took it. Yeah, like, revisiting the book, you realize how much of a copy of superior, um, other, of other superior works it is. And how much of a bad imitation it is, honestly. And it's just kind of, it's not worth, I don't think it's worth all our rage. No. It's, and I, th- and I think you can, t- you can say that a lot of the, the failings of these books and franchises that, that, that 
it's because they they take from inspiration and superior superior source material. And I think you can say that Divergent is a inferior version of Harry Potter plus Hunger Games. Yeah, I mean, like, imi- there is no more like original works, but at least like if you're going to take an idea like from a superior work, do your own twist on it, and that's yeah. what makes a successful franchise. It's not replicating it exactly, which is a problem in both like literature, the knockoff literatures, and also the knockoff movies that come after the first successful franchise. And we've mentioned this a few times, but we've always talked about, like, oh, they're trying to find the next Harry Potter, mm-hmm. they're trying to find the next this, which just, it makes me wonder if there's not much passion going on in creating these adaptations, mm-hmm. rather they're just trying to find the next big one, and they don't care as much about the source material as we've seen other adaptations care. I think so. I think they're su- they're obsessed with the formula more than they are about why it's successful. Well, I think yeah. I think you can point to Harry Potter as it being a su- as a, a success because the books the book series itself were such a phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was such like people were lining up at midnight to buy the books. That doesn't happen with the Hunger Games. I don't think that happened with the Hunger Games. That doesn't happen with the Divergent series. Like Harry Potter was the only one where I where I had act- seen like news stories about people lining up. To get, to get the books. Like, I always pre-ordered mine, so they came in the mail the first day. But, uh, like, the book series were so was so incredible years before they decided to make the first movie, which was, I think, the first book series... The first book came out in 96, 97? Mm-hmm. And then the first movie came out in 2001. Yeah. So they had made three to three or four... I think Goblet of Fire, the book was being made while the first movie was being made. Mm-hmm. But, so they kind of overlapped with that. So, by the time you get to the midpoint of the series, they already started making the movies. And I think that's... Whereas with... um, So there had been a good time between the first book and the first movie. Whereas you get Hunger Games, I think it's... Might be the same amount, but it just feels like suddenly, once Harry Harry Potter has kicked off this, like, let's... Frenzy, almost. We gotta make every mildly successful or super successful young adult book into its own either TV show, like Pretty Little Liars yeah, is on ABC like, Family. they suddenly like, discovered this whole new demographic yeah. that they want to cater to. Like, HT and I have this game where we go, whenever we go into Barnes & Noble, we go to the young adult section and say, oh, which one of these is going to be the next movie mm-hmm. or the next TV show? But I wonder, like, do you, do you guys think that this whole trend of just kind of doing mediocre adaptations and trying to find the next big, like, copy of this successful franchise is limited to young adult genre or do you think it's just like a microcosm of Hollywood or is it like this sort of just viewpoint of how it is maybe like young adult genre like looked down on and they just think that these kids will take this story either way Hmm. I think it is um, a symptom Mm -hmm. of larger Hollywood Um, I think it is more obvious in young adult but I feel like Hollywood's always trying to find the next big thing. Obviously. Hollywood is a business town. They want to make money. They want to find the next big thing. It's why superheroes are so big right now. It's because when they found Iron Man and it did so well, they it grew so fast. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you could tell that DC is now kind of doing their own version in a response to Marvel, doing mm-hmm. their... Universe. Scrambling somewhat, I would They're say. They're scrambling. Oh, yeah, so hard. Scrambling. When Marvel announced all their movies, they were... Uh, or did DC announce their movie? Their... They didn't do an, a public announcement. They did it over, like, over stock investments. Oh, basically. yeah. Whereas Marvel was like, 
look at all the TV, the movies and TV shows we're be doing. And DC was like, shit, shit, shit. Okay, get, let's get Cyborg. Let's get Wonder Woman. Let's get Flash and yet, Justice League. DC is still beating Marvel at the first female-led film. Very true. It's true. What a shame. Captain Marvel keeps getting pushed back. Yeah. Take note, Marvel. <laughs> so, we've talked about why they don't work. And the ones that failed. But, to kind of wrap up, are there any that haven't been adapted yet that you guys think would make good adaptations and you would like to see them adapt? I have a little list. Okay, so do um, I. <laughs> I actually have one, but it kind of may be cheating a little bit, but we'll, we'll talk about it. This is one I'm actually, this is one I would like to see because I really enjoyed the series, but I also do not know if it would make a successful film series because it might be hard to adapt. This might be why it hasn't been adapted yet. It's Artemis Fowl by Eowyn Culfer. Um, it's a series that I think is still ongoing. I no, I think, it, I think they, they, they ended it. Did they it. end it? Oh, my God. I'm, I bought the most recent one, too, like a year ago, and I was like, I'm still reading this series. <laughs> <laughs> but it's basically about a – he is – how old is he in the book? He's 12 years old in the first book. A child genius who is from Ireland, and he's like – um, a formerly wealthy family who's kind of like on the brink of collapse and his father has disappeared and his mother is sick and just kind of like getting worse. And he decides to rip off the magical world. So he tries to steal a bunch of gold from leprechauns, essentially. But He's playing a dangerous oh, game. I know. But in this world, the elves and like the fairies, they are actually like, way more technologically advanced than the humans, and, and they all live underground after, like, the whole fallout between human, humans and the fairies. And Leprechaun actually stands for L-E-P Recon, which is, like, the police force. <laughs> and Oh, they're Irish cops? They're Irish cops. <laughs> or, like, I think they're... Wow. Like, <laughs> and, Do they also like donuts, too? <laughs> no one knows. But, yeah, it's, it's a really fascinating kind of fun sci-fi fantasy series, and there's a really great dynamic between Artemis Fowl, who's kind of like this really pretentious, sort of like if you if you have ever read the Batman comics, he's like a Damian Wayne type. He thinks he's like the shit, and oh in boy. fact he's not. But he's like really clever too. So like at, at points he'll be like, "Oh, I did this genius thing." You're like, "Oh, Artemis, that's actually really cool." My dad has a phrase, but then he like gets in over his head, of course. My dad has a phrase: thinking you're cool and knowing you're not. Yeah, <laughs> and he has like this great dynamic between um, the elf the. The elf, I think it's an elf. The fairy that he abducted. <laughs> I can't remember. They like it's like interplay, like the the words. That, um, but the fairy he abducted is Holly, and she's kind of like this police officer type who's actually like really cool, you know, wild at heart type of police officer. And they have a great dynamic. And the first book is essentially like a whole hostage situation where he kidnaps her and tries to ransom her for money and the police have to like negotiate with a terrorist essentially or else he will reveal the entire fairy community to them. Wait, basically. Artemis Fowl is yeah. the terrorist? Basically. What the hell? It's, it's, <laughs> he's basically the villain but he's kind of an anti-hero and it's This is probably why they haven't adapted it yet. It's, probably it's like a 12 <laughs> yeah, year old terrorist. Yeah, they're not going to do that. <laughs> but it's like, it's such a great series and like the problem with the books is that, like, it keeps going on. Like, it, at the first, the last good book was probably the third one, and then, like, it just, they keep trying to make more adventures with him. But he's a really great character and a, like, really fascinating kind of pretentious little tiny shit. 
Well, you never know. I mean, you say it keeps going on, but, like, they could, instead of trying to adapt every single book into a movie, they could do a more limited, like, trilogy, or even just, like, one film adapting, like, one good story with Artemis Fowl. The first book is definitely the best one. But, yeah, I mean, I would love to see it, even though it would be hard, because at some points, like, as Artemis gets older, there's, like, a weird tension between him and Holly, and you're like, she is, like, a hundred years old and you are still 14 <laughs> aka you mean like tomorrowland Ooh. i haven't seen that yet so i don't know but like it i mean you do kind of like see it because like they have so many adventures together and they have like a really good rapport and it's like all the characters are really great there's like a centaur who you know, actually he might not be a centaur i keep like mixing him up with narnia um who has like who's a big paranoid like conspiracy theorist who always wears like a tinfoil hat and he's like the tech genius um, but it's a really great combination of sci-fi and fantasy, and I really love it. And the books are, like, they keep, like, popping up with new covers and, like, audiobooks, and I keep thinking that there's going to be a movie adaptation, but there hasn't been yet. It might be, like, I think it's in, like, development health, because I feel like they keep trying to make a movie. I, yeah, it sounds mm-hmm. like it. Yeah, but I would love to see a movie of that. Um, my next two ones, I'll talk less about them. Um, what else did I say? I, have you ever heard of the Sabriel series? No. I've heard of it, but I've mm-hmm. never read it. Um, it is by, I think it's by Garth Nix, um, Sabriel, I should have looked this up earlier, um, but it's a really great, um, fantasy series about necromancy, essentially, and it's set in, like, this kind of world where, like, magic and necromancy is, like, kind of interconnected, and a lot of saving the world, it's it's very high fantasy, I really like it, I haven't read it in a while, actually, it's a trilogy, there's, like, Sabriel, Lyriel, and third one i can't remember abortion abortion which is like another word for like necromancer in that world and there's a lot of kind of confrontations with like the undead which i think would play a lot into the whole obsession with zombies that is going on right now fantasy it's really fascinating she's a great female character and very kind of it's, it's a little bit gothic honestly um well we know you love gothic <laughs> no and like so it might be a little bit out of turn with, like, the whole, um, you know, ha- not really happy, but, like, more kind of mainstream action hero, female action heroine that we see nowadays. Because she's kind of, like, broody and has, like, long, full and black hair. And, like, it's, I don't know. So I, Winona Ryder in Beetlejuice? Oh, maybe not. Like, more ethereal kind of thing. Oh, okay. Like, if Mia Wasikowska had black hair and was, like, a little bit darker more brooding. I don't know. Like emo high school? <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, it's a it's a great series. I recommend it. Um, I haven't read it in a while, but it's really great fantasy undead type of series. And I don't know if it would play well in as a movie adaptation. I can kind of see it as like an HBO series or something. Yeah. That's, yeah, I think it could be a good series. Mm-hmm. So that's one I would love to see. So that's it. All right. Um, so remember how I said that I love fantasy books? Yes. All right. So that's where my, my two picks come in. Mm-hmm. So the first one is just a single book, not a series. Pretty easy. And it is a book that I read almost annually. Mm. And it is The Two Princesses of Bamar by <gasps> oh Gail Carson Levine, I who love- also did Ella Enchanted, which had an adaptation that people did not like. Yeah. Also with Anne Hathaway. Mm-hmm. Also with Anne Hathaway. But that does not mean that an adaptation of this book has to be bad. Um, it is simple. It's short. I think it would make a lovely film. It's about these two sisters 
living in a very traditional kind of fantasy medieval world, dragons, knights, etc. Um, and one of them, the extrovert, the strong, brave, heroic one, falls ill um, with an illness that is kind of ravaging their world. Um, and her sister, the far more introverted, timid one, has to go on a quest to try and find the cure for her sister. And it's very much, you know, she meets griffins, there are sorcerers, there's dragons, there are fairies. It's very much traditional fantasy, um, which is what I love. But it's like a subversion of the whole genre because it's like the timid uh, girl who would usually be the damsel in distress who's going off on this adventure. And she's basically like scared witless the entire time, but manages to power through. And it has wonderful, wonderful commentary and themes on death Mm -hmm. um, because of this illness. I'm not going to get too much into the ending, but there are some really great themes that are expressed in this book for children, I think. Um, And so I would love to see that adapted. The next one is, um, actually, it's just one author who I would love to see any of their work adapted. It's uh, Tamara Pierce. Oh, I was going to say. Yeah, and she is one of my favorite authors of all time, forever. She has two, two universes, and all of her books take place in one of the two universes. There's Tortal which is another traditional medieval fantasy world where there are kings and knights and magic, etc. Um, and then there's Emelon, which is a more nuanced society, um, which mostly deals with children who have certain magical abilities. Um, and they kind of form like this kind of this found family. Um, it's really wonderful. That one is a bit more mature. Um, like I said, a bit more nuanced. Tortal is very much more traditional. Um, but how it works, so, like, with Tortal, like, the first series is about one character, and it's four books, and then the next one is about another character, another four books, but she meets, like, the character from the first one, and then the next one is another character, four books, and it kind of goes, but it, they interweave as they go. She has expressed, Tamara Pierce has expressed some issues with Hollywood adaptations of movies and, like, why they haven't been made and some hesitation, so I don't know if they ever will, but they're fantastic. They're so great. Um, Tamara Pierce, especially, she has she's really good about diversity and representation in her books. Both she has, of, yeah, she always has yeah. really strong female heroines, and they're yeah. they're stronger in the sense of like the the popular idea of the of the strong female character, which is like they're actually characters. They're varied. They're they have depth. Yeah, yeah, and you know, people of color, and there are queer characters in her universes, so. It's really wonderful, and I don't know if it'll ever happen, but I would love to see them adapted. So, those well, are my We're also seeing a lot of, um, a lot more, like, TV series adaptations of high fantasy. Yeah, there's um, a one coming out on M- MTV, I yeah, believe. Yeah, the Shannara Chronicles. I haven't heard yeah. of it, but I know I think it's also a series, like a young adult series as well. Or maybe, yeah, actually, I'm interested in yeah. checking it out. The trailer looks good. Mm-hmm. Well, we saw that. We saw, like, um, Legend of the Seeker, which was mm-hmm. on... Um, what channel was it? Showtime? Oh, Stars. It was on Stars. Yeah. Um, and we're seeing a lot more of that. I think a lot, a lot of them spawned by Game of Thrones. Um, and I feel like a lot of these young adult high fantasy series would do well on TV. Um, even though, I agree. Uh, even though, like a lot of the, the networks are looking for like the next Game of Thrones again. Um, I, trying well, to find, it like, is the it is the time for TV. Yeah, mm-hmm. but they're trying so. to find like the gritty adult themed type of series when in fact we can get like really great stories that aren't just bloody and adult and graphic, like Tamora Pierce's series. So we'll see. Yeah. I mean, like we can pitch them. We'll be like, hey guys, 
right? listen to this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> we have a lot of ideas. <laughs> so, Willoughby, what is your one choice that might be cheating? It might I'm be cheating curious. because it's, our, it's a book set in the Star Wars universe. So it would be ad- adapting something that's already, like, part of the canon, which I know that they don't really do that in Star Wars, where, I mean, they, not, they've thrown out all of the expanded universe to start over again, but... And people thought that the new trilogy was going to be like the Thrawn trilogy uh, that took that took place immediately after Return of the Jedi, but they're not doing that. And well, they they're doing post Return of the Jedi comic books and stuff. But the one I'm talking about, I think I mentioned it before on the podcast, the book called Lost Stars. Yeah, um, the one the Romeo and Juliet. The thing. Roman the, the the Romeo and Juliet one where it doesn't start out Romeo and Juliet. What, Basically, it's these two kids who live on this backwater planet. For those of you who ha- haven't heard me talk about it yet, um, it's these two kids who grow up on this farm planet. One from the si- the city, and the other, and the, gr- the the boy is from the city, and the girl is from the like the village outskirts. And they meet they meet each other one day because the empire finally comes to their planet to to say order has been, uh, you know. There is now order in the galaxy. The Clone War is over, and everything is good. So, and they they grew up in their head thinking the Empire is good because there's no war, um, because they've they, peace has not, they have peace in their time, and basically they they both love flying. So the two of them are best friends that, from the like the age of eight onwards, and they both get into the Imperial Academy on Coruscant together. And they go through the Imperial Academy in three to four years, and they, they, you know, they're done by the age of twenty. They're actually no, they're done by the age of nineteen because they actually are the same age as the Empire. So by the time they're they're nineteen, they're both, they're uh, the the girl is, uh, um, she's an Imperial officer on a Star Destroyer, and he's stationed on the Death Star, and he's a Tie Fighter pilot. So. And they go through the they go through the series of they go through the original trilogy through their eyes. They're they're uh, they see what happens to the Death Star. They see what happens to Alderaan. They see the there's you know she's at the Battle of Hoth. He's uh, he actually ends up defecting and going to the, to uh, the Rebel Alliance. This is all on the back cover, so I'm not spoiling really much. Um, and they basically. Uh, they they and they also fall in love with each other uh even though he starts to drift to the rebel alliance and she has a strict honor code that's like deep in her fa- familial uh like presence like when she grows up her her culture is all about honor so when she stri- when she has loyalty it's never ending even if it's to something as evil as the empire because she feels ter- she would feel terrible about defecting she can't do it it's not in her person Whereas he is more of a, he's always been a little bit rebellious in, in with authority his entire life. So having seeing the destruction of Alderaan kind of was like the final nail on the coffin, and he was like, yeah, yeah, you know what, I'm not going to do this. And at first he was like, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to be on the rebels. I'm not going to be on the empire. And he, then he actually meets Wedge Antilles, and they were like, you know what, yeah, I think the rebels rebel alliance is okay. So he get he gets involved there, and basically. It, it's a love story, and I think that they could really do not a not a film, but I think like a, like a mini series or like a three season sort of like limited series run where they go from the beginning to the end. Where I think it 
they could do a really good job of maybe doing something like the Imperial, like a like a like a like a season or two in the Imperial Academy, where it's kind of like Harry Potter, but like the dark side of Harry Potter, where like you get to see like these are real people becoming stormtroopers, these are real people becoming Imperial officers. Like what what's going on in their head? Like like they do a really good job of characterizing people who are just like they're all they're going to be in their life is a stormtrooper. Like what is that? Like, you never see that in, in the Star Wars movies. They're just faceless soldiers. But really, they have personalities. They're real people. So, like, and they talk about how real people died on the Death Star, and you never really think about that in the movies. And I think that that's a, it's a really fascinating observation on the Star Wars saga uh, from, the, from the dark side. But they're not, they're not the dark side. They're, they're the low-level Imperial officers who aren't Sith. They're, not, they're, they're just doing what they grew up with doing. Like, they're... It's not until they're young adults where they realize that shit's wrong. I wonder if we'll be seeing that more in The Force Awakens. Hmm. We might, but I don't think yours is cheating, Willoughby. It's a lot of young adult themes. Right. It just happens to be set in, a universe in an already established mm-hmm. universe. Yeah. yeah, but I think it totally counts. Okay, yeah. cool. Well, I, and it sounds like a good story. I like it's it. A, it's a great story. I definitely recommend you guys read it. Okay. Um, it's... It, it, it's a little predictable with them falling in love and everything, but it kind of it's interesting because it, it, you just you see them at, like they have different they have very different contrasting viewpoints on the galaxy, but they love each other. Mm. Yeah. All right. So, so that will wrap up our YA young adult genre discussion, which has lasted a bit longer than our usual discussions. We apologize and we thank anyone who stayed as long to listen to this. If you've broken this up into different commuting segments, hi on the ride back. And we also <laughs> we also want to say you're welcome if your commute is especially long, so yes. you have yes. something to listen to. If you're stuck in traffic right now, thank you All for right. listening. It's going to go on a little bit longer because we're going to go to our last segment of the episode, which is our love-hate segment. So, I'm going to assume that your love-hate is going to be similar to what you were just talking about. Is it? Uh, no. Okay, never mind oh. then. All right, I'm just going to go to Anya first then. All right. <laughs> um, what do you love? What do you re- hate? I didn't really have anything specifically the last couple of weeks. Um, I was trying to think of one, and I think I'm just going to have to plug a movie that I saw yesterday, which was Brooklyn, and it was absolutely wonderful. Pretty much everyone I talked to had no idea. Yeah, that I have no idea. Thing. It's starring Saoirse Ronan, right? Yes, and um, Donald Gleason, our buddy, Donald Gleason, who we love. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then Donald. I forget who plays the other leading character. His name is Tony in the movie. Um, I forget who. He's a newcomer of sorts, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very indie film. Um, Jim Broadbent and Julie Walters also have supporting roles in it. Um very indie, but critics are loving it. It could be an Oscar contender. Um, it is about a girl from Ireland in the 1950s who comes to America. And it's about her blossoming as a person in America. Um, and then something happens and she has to go back home to Ireland for a while. And it becomes this kind of push-pull of doing what people expect you to do, doing what might be your duty versus doing what is best for you as a human being. Um, It's so simple, but very beautiful, very expertly crafted. It's so human. Um, And if you watch that film and your heart isn't soaring at the last scene, well, I feel sorry for you. 
Um, it's, it's so beautiful. You have no heart. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Um, it'll just, it'll make you smile. And I was smiling so much throughout this film. I mean, I also cried, but I was very happy with how much I was sitting there in the theater, just smiling to myself. So I recommend that if you can go see it, it is in very limited release at the moment, but if you can see it, go check it out. Cause it's wonderful. So many movies to see this weekend. Oh I haven't. I, I still haven't seen Spectre yet. So. Neither I. Don't I. <laughs> oh my god! I, I want to see Spotlight real bad. And Spotlight. I heard and Spotlight is surprisingly good. Yeah, I heard it's excellent. I yeah. heard it's supposed to be a really good journalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, Willoughby. Okay. What is your love hate this week? I'm really loving Aziz Ansari's new Netflix show, Master of None. Mm-hmm. I binge watched it, as the kids say. Uh, Friday and Saturday, um, <laughs> and uh, a little bit today. I fin- I fell asleep last night because I moved to a new apartment. Um, so I I woke up this morning and watched the last two episodes uh, just so I could talk about it on this podcast. Um, basically, if you, for those of you who don't know, Aziz Ansari has he's a stand up comedian. He was on Parks and Rec. He was he played Tom Haverford. He now has his own television show on Netflix called Master of None. It's basically like his version of Broad City slash Girls slash New York City based comedy that is a single camera comedy. Uh, It's written by him. It's directed by him. It's his own pet personal project uh, along with Alan Yang, I think is uh, his co-creator. And he basically plays an actor, Aziz plays an actor named Dev uh, in Brooklyn, uh, in, in New York. He's doing his own like struggling actor getting commercials bit bit parts in movies deal um but he's also like a 30 year old millennial who's dealing with modern romance dealing with modern friendships with basically the issues of the day that we all face and struggle with but what i really love about it is that it's issues that no other tv show is doing it's it there's one episode specifically about feminism and uh, what it's like to be a woman at night, what it's like to be a man at night, and why and how there's su- such a different injustice when it comes to men and women in Sounds cities. great already. Yeah. <laughs> no, and, it, and like... And it's like these aren't controversial topics. It's just something that hasn't been covered. Yeah, and it, if it's covered, it's only been in like the, on the internet, and he's bringing these issues to life. He's bringing... There's more representation in this show for minorities and people of color than any other show on network television, at least. Cable could be, you could say different, but there's more Indians on this show than ever. His, he, pl- he put his parents, his, he, uh, his parents play uh, his character's parents on the show. Uh, it's semi-autobiographical in that sense uh, that he, like they, they name drop that he's from South Carolina, that he, he's first generation Im- uh, immigrant. Uh, his parents are immigrants. He's first generation. Um, that he went to school in New York, and I think, Aziz, I think Aziz did all the same things that his character does. But he's taken a different route. He's not a stand-up comedian. He's just an, an actor. Um, but I really love like the, uh, a lot of the scenes are his friends sitting down at brunch or at dinner talking about issues and talking, but like very hilariously, and they're just basic basic conversations. And there's a there's a semi- there's kind of, there's a an ongoing plot of like a relationship he has with this woman, this woman Rachel. Um, uh, there's surprising cameos from famous people that he's he either hooks up with or meets or has like an adventure with. 
his best friend is a white guy named Arnold. He's kind of a doofus, but he's also hilarious. Uh, he's kind of like uh, he's like a, a lovable teddy bear, like a lovable giant. Um, he also has a, a best friend who's black and a lesbian, and she's great. Like she's like she's such a great character. Um, and then uh, he has uh, he has an Asian friend. I think his, I forget his name, but he was only in one episode. Uh, but it was a great episode about um, being first generation uh, and talking about like their like his their modern day struggles with like what the model their, immigrant and that kind of stuff. Sorry, like the model immigrant and that kind of stuff. Kind of, and like his parents are like their their parents have like what they struggled with to like when they were where they were in their countries and then when they came over to America and kind of like how their struggles are they're different struggles than what Aziz and his friend have. Um, and it's kind of like the, like Aziz and his, his friend don't really take, they kind of take their parents for granted. And then they see, they ha- they see their, uh, their parents went through a lot and they kind of rediscover the importance of what their parents did to get them to where they are now. Um, so it's a really great series and each episode is like a different theme. Um, and it's only 10 episodes, half hour each. I definitely give it a recommendation. I definitely want to check it's, it out. And it's hilarious. Awesome. It's definitely going to be, I hope it's nominated for an Emmy next year. It's that good, I believe. Fingers crossed. Yes. Netflix is getting more recognition, too, so that's always good. All right. My love-hate, I will go last, is in the vein of what we were talking about today, it is all the Fantastic Beasts news that we got. So Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them is a spinoff of the Harry Potter series, um, only it's not an exact spinoff. It's set in the same world, um, and it's about Newt Scamander, who is a magic zoologist and yeah. kind of um, the writer of Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, a short like encyclopedia that J.K. Rowling wrote of all the magical beasts and in the in, Harry Potter world. And in-universe, it's a textbook that they have at Hogwarts. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's the textbook. Yes. So if you read the book yourself, it's really funny because Harry and Ron like write comments yeah, in like the margins. Yeah, they notes and stuff, and they're kind of just like sassing each other and Hermione's like what are you guys doing yeah it's, <laughs> it's funny it's like a really nice like character beat or whatever mm-hmm. um and so Newt Scamander is the writer of this encyclopedia and it's about his adventures in 1920s New York he's a British um wizard but he comes to New York and it's kind of like a fish out of water story and to like he's kind of come to explore and find more beasts and magical creatures um and this week we just saw new photos and stills from the film. And some more plot developments. And more plot development. So it's also starring Colin Farrell, uh, Samantha Morton, and who else? Ezra Miller. Ezra, Ezra Miller? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah Ezra Miller. Going to be in it. Um, Ron Perlman. Yes, Ron Perlman I'm excited for. And Eddie Redmayne plays uh, Newt oh, Scamander. Yes. Eddie Redmayne is Newt Scamander. Yes. And he looks great. Um, and... <laughs> Colin Farrell is going to be playing a an American horror named... Oh, Graves, I yeah. believe. I'm, I'm and so- I was so skeptical about him at first, but now I'm, like, super on board with him with the idea of, like, as an order. Like, that sounds great. I'm upset that he's not using... He hasn't used his natural Irish brogue for, like, 20 years now. The last time I remember him being Irish was in the Scrubs episode he was in. <laughs> <laughs> Good God. So, yeah, it's a great cast. The um, script is written by J.K. Rowling, actually. And it's her so first uh, screen. It's her first screenwriting credit, and she... So it's, like... A completely original story because the original text is just like a little kind of fun character, like side note thing. And um, yeah, there's no real plot. There's no textbook. real plot in it. It's just a textbook, literally. 
with like yeah. random notes. Um, and directed, I think, by David Yates. David Yates. David Yates, Yates, Yates the Harry who Potter films. was an executive producer for the first Harry Potter film. And he did the last. He directed the last four. Yes, exactly. Um, and he. So the pictures look amazing. It has. It shows like a lot of 1920s. America, and um, it looks like it has a great, like, Art Deco style with especially, like, the um, American Ministry of Magic, which is the... The, the U- Magical Congress Magical, of the United States of America. Magical Congress of the United States of America, which is the most American name because, of course, we have a super long title. J.K. Rowling also revealed that we have um, an American term for muggle, which is nomad. Let's the talk best. about nomads. Can we talk the about nomads? Okay. People are mad People because, hate it, it because, because it sounds because, stupid. Because it, it's, it sounds stupid. First of all, muggle, the first time you ever heard it, that's a stupid word. But okay. we love we love it. The reason why nomads works so perfectly is because in the 1920s, there was all this different lingo that we don't have anymore. But the one thing is, let's talk about the word movie for a second. What's a movie? It's, it's a, a motion movie. picture. People took the word motion and the movement, and we're like, we're going to call this a movie. And then when they got sound, they called it a talkie. That was the real term for a, a picture with sound. Yes. A talkie. We are, Americans are silly. We have silly words. No mash is short for no magic. Like, that is the most it's American great. thing you could possibly call someone with no magic. Yeah. Besides so saying, you're a person with no magic. <laughs> yeah. So I love no uh, People do not be angry that Americans will butcher words because they will butcher words whether you like it or not. <laughs> Both fictionally and in real life. We go to college it's at hilarious. Notre Dame. It's not so dumb. <laughs> so I'm excited. Um, there was like a bit of kind of, not controversy, but like a bit of a stirrings and in like the internet because there are no people of color in these pictures or in the main cast. And I was actually kind of disappointed too because... Um, I know J.K. Rowling when she was first kind of promoting this stuff like on Twitter about Fantastic Beasts. She was t- talking about how American magic, some of it is rooted in like Native American magic. Yeah, which, a lot of it is. Yeah, I, I had, that is something that I would definitely like want to see. And we don't see like any hint of that really in the pictures. But they're only like the first couple it's, of stills. It's only the first couple of stills and mm-hmm. it's only the main cast. So it's possible that the supporting cast mm-hmm. will be a lot more diverse. I'm well, hoping. And- J.K. Rowling herself tweeted, someone tweeted at her about the disappointment, and she tweeted, um, this is going to be a trilogy, this is just the beginning, like, don't judge until you see it. By just, like, eight photos. I get where she's coming from, like, I do, and, like, I'm assuming that's going to mean that there will be people of color in this film. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm assuming that is confirmation that we will have people of color. Um, But, you know, it's not enough to me. It's not enough to say, just wait and see, because... We need to actively be doing more on this front. And I believe it was also David Yates, the director, who said, like, oh, like, it'll be, there will be people of color. It'll be, like, organic. And <laughs> what does that mean? Even? It's, like, what a non-answer. What a terrible answer. I know. And, like, it's not like they haven't heard this before, because Harry Potter has been somewhat criticized for not having any people of color in the main cast. Like, yep. we have great people of color who are supporting characters, like Kingsley or um, so see, Seamus. You know, how yeah. Awesome. yeah, and, like, well, not Seamus. No, not Seamus, sorry. Dean? Dean Thomas. Yes, Dean, Dean Thomas. Dean oh, my gosh. Seamus is the Irish one. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they always were together. But, yeah, I mean, like, it's not like they haven't heard this criticism before, and it's, like, a good chance, especially in 1920s New York, which is, like, this burgeoning city that has all walks of life and all sorts of people in that city. And yeah. 
Yeah. So, so hopefully we see more of it. Yes. I'm, I'm just excited for the Roaring Twenties. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah. I'm really happy. I hope they kind of go with a sort of steampunk style sometimes. Cause I'm a huge fan of steampunk. I know it's like a little bit late in the steampunk era, but you know what? You never know. I'll go with it. Um, so yeah, that's my love-hate for this week. Awesome. So that's our episode for the week, guys. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you. Uh, you should definitely let us know your favorite and least favorite young adult adaptations. Mm-hmm. We'd love to hear them. You can tweet us, comment on Facebook. Uh, speaking of, where can they find us to do this, Willoughby? You can find us on Twitter at Falcon Podcast and search us on Facebook for The Millennial Fal- Falcon. And um, we have our WordPress, which is millennialfalconpodcast.wordpress.com. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where we will, we post this blog uh, at, with the uh, SoundCloud post. We're also on SoundCloud. And we're also on iTunes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, we okay. hope to maybe get onto other podcasting platforms that are not iTunes specific because I know of some people who want to listen to us, but they're but because they don't have an iPhone or an iPod, uh, they can't take us on the go. Oh. Um, Although um, the app that I used, I, I have an Android, and the app that I use, which is called, I forget, it's called Podcast Addict, mm-hmm. and we are on there if you just search for Millennial Falcon. Oh, really? It's, okay, so they just take iTunes podcasts. Mm-hmm. If you actually, if you find us on SoundCloud, you can download us there. Oh yeah, that's I, true. I enabled that. There, there is there is an uh, there is a SoundCloud app that you can download onto any Android or iPhone, mm-hmm. and you can phone. download the whole file on SoundCloud as well. Cool. Oh, um, that's where you can find so us. You can where find can... us everywhere. Yeah. And, and where can where we can... where can we find us specifically? <laughs> exactly on the internet. Well, you can find me Anya uh, on Twitter at Anya Crittenton. You can find me, Huai Chen, at htranbui. You can find me, Willoughby Dobbs, at Willoughby Dobbs. <laughs> All, All right. right, that's our episode. Thank, Thank you for you. listening to the Millennial Falcon. <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.